So I got really excited during the credits of Wrongs Darker Than I Have Touched the Sky um, because there was a guest star named David Bowe. And I thought it was David Bowie, and I was I was like, I didn't know he was in an episode of Star Trek, but we had Iggy Pop a couple weeks ago, so it would make sense. Yeah, David Bowie actually played Goldicott. That would be a wonderful—I I would— that, There is an alternate timeline where that happened, and it's wonderful, and DS9 is still going on because it's that good of a show. Yeah, yeah, it's going into its 28th season. <laughs> yeah, this is quite the episode. Yeah. Both of these were quite the episode, but in very different ways. Yeah, I think, well, one of the things that I want to talk about with this episode of the podcast particularly is that watching uh, Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night and then watching Inquisition and and really knowing what comes after them and and obviously what comes before them because we've already talked about them, I think this is my favorite run of episodes of the entire series. The the sixth season is shaping up to be very dark, to mm. be very depressing, but that that thematically is appropriate. We're, yeah. we're talking about wartime. We're talking about a time when the Federation is at an existential threat, is very much threatened by the Dominion and the Cardassians, and it makes sense that everyone would be kind of walking around depressed. Yeah. Yeah. But but I think this episode in particular goes so much darker than I thought a Star Trek would go because it very I mean it directly deals with <laughs> the <laughs> with the concept of comfort women and collaboration and what one has to we there was that line that Kira had at one point to Odo you know we all had to get a little dirty in order to survive during the wartime and that yeah. was fine and we've seen this but this takes it into an even I don't know. This takes it even to into a more bleak and, in a way, gritty part of, you know, this and Far Beyond the Stars in particular have made it just, I don't know. It's a very woke show, I guess, to use the 2016 <laughs> term. But, um, you know, it's it's talking about every sing, every, obviously every version of Star Trek has gotten a little more progressive in its way. Has, yeah. um Again, I still don't quite know what's going to go on with Voyager and Enterprise in that way. But, you know, given that Voyager has a female captain, it's still going within that. Um, each incarnation of Star Trek tries to pick up groups that are more marginalized and mm-hmm. that the previous one missed. And uh, I would say Deep Space Nine is going fairly deep into that well. Um Again, these these are the I don't know. It's it's a hard episode to talk about, well, I guess, yeah. because it it I took five million notes for this episode. I'll say, yeah, and I took almost none. <laughs> I think that that which is you know usually par for the course. I it was actually kind of interesting. This is a side note, but I was listening to um, an episode of WTF with Mark Marin this week, and uh, one of the interviews he did um, on the episode that I listened to was a, a jazz critic that was working for the New York Times for for a number of mm. years. And he said that when he goes to concerts, he he takes notes uh, just out of habit, but he almost never uses them. Yeah, and that's kind of how I do things now. Well, I, think- I, I I take notes, but I don't really use them that much. I mean, I'm not looking at them now, and I probably no. will not look at them very much during this conversation. I usually look to review certain points. But I, I I will say the act of taking the note in a way does help cement right, it in the memory. Right. But anyway, it's, um, you know, knocking down some some synapses or whatever. I, I think that what is striking about Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night is and, and Inquisition as well, because I think that, you know, these two episodes kind of slot very nicely together in the ways in which they examine the the lies that that people, that societies, that cultures 
and governments have to tell mm. themselves in order to to get through the day and to survive. And I think that what you see, especially with the character of Major Kira, you know, she has gone from, you know, a hot headed firebrand that had just come out of the the Bajoran resistance and was now struggling with having to deal with being a you know, a high level functionary, a very visible person in a position of authority, working with the Federation on a space station and having to, you know, for example, the episode from the first season progress where she met with the yeah. old man, you know, they had to deal with that, you know, so this has been the continuation of her story throughout this entire, throughout the entire show, frankly. And, and this idea of collaborators has always been there and she's yeah. always been, you know, Kira has come around from being uh, prejudiced or racist against all Cardassians. She's beyond that. She very much does not like Gul Dukat specifically no. because she thinks he's Hitler, essentially, which I agree with. But she has become more of a... I want to say she's become more... Nuanced in Nuanced, her. yeah. And, and this is really, I think, the last gasp of that yeah. where she still had this very strong visceral dislike of quote-unquote collaborators and this is really what this episode is about yeah it's explaining to kira what exactly being a collaborator means and in a way kira i, I in a very real real way kira has a lot more advantages in terms of knowledge than maru does number one she knows how much longer the occupation is going to last and you know what's going to eventually happen, and though, and so it does make more sense for Kira to say, you know, we just have to hold out for you know a little longer, and you know, eventually we'll win. Maru has no idea, as far as Maru knows, she has to live in a world where the Cardassians have taken over everything. Yeah, and I mean, her decisions are extremely. That is the world she lives in. Yeah, um, and particularly with Golducat. Golducat is. This is Goldicott's pattern. He did it with uh, Torziel's mother. He's doing it with Maru. He even does it with Kira a little bit. But he wants to find a Bajoran woman and, woman and have her fall in love with him because that pro- makes him believe that he's the good guy. Yeah. Remember, Goldicott very much thinks that he's doing the right decision for for everybody. Maru even says, you know, oh, he's talked to Central Command. He's, you know, tried to get them to, which, you know, was one of the things Dukat used in his own defense a couple mm-hmm. episodes ago. Um, in Waltz. Yes. Yeah. Kira has been, Kira has so much more experience, frankly, with Gold Dukat and has seen all the various sides of Gold Dukat that she is able to see through him immediately. She recognizes that, you know, where he is playing the nice cop, you know, with the uh, the the Bajoran guy who's leading them around. She knows exactly what he's doing. Yep. You know, she knows, and in a way, I think she's almost disappointed in Maru for falling for that. But first of all, Maru has been treated poorly her entire life. Gold Dukat is the first person who is feeding her and giving her nice things to wear. And even if we know the reasons and we know why Dukat is doing this and we know that he doesn't exactly love her yeah. in the way at all. Um, I, I, it makes, I guess at the end of, at the end of the episode, they're left with this notion that it was Maru's own decision. She's the one who had to live with the consequences of her actions yeah. and that Kira can only, can't really have as much say into, in that as she would. Um, I'm thinking of the scene as well where there are the two guards and Kira's obviously going to be overpowered, but she, you know, punches them anyway. Like, that's something Captain Kirk would do. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, 
for Kira, that's not as unfair of a fight as it would be. It's it's a she's a little more evenly matched, and maybe against one Cardassian, she'd be you know fine because she has combat training. Is Maru going to attack a Cardassian guard? No, it's she's not going to survive that. Right. Yeah, and I think that well, linking this to specifically Kira's experiences that have just passed with yeah. the Cardassian Dominion occupation of of DS Nine in the first six episodes of this season. Yes. Where what you know, especially with an episode like Behind the Lines, you know, where she was really dealing with um, having to uh, her own feelings about working with the Dominion, about in effect becoming a collaborator to some degree. Yeah, and she and, even and uh, I well, yeah, no, I go ahead. I was gonna say she even dealt with some bits of that feelings with the Federation early on yeah. in that one early episode where she meets her old. Uh, resistance buddy who's basically accusing her of being a collaborator with the federation oh the, you know you've sold our people out to the federation um kira has and rightly so as far as the show is concerned made the right choice because the federation is working with them rather than working over them as the cardassians are but and also it's the federation so they're, they're, of course they're the well, good guys in this story yes but i think that yeah you know kira has gone through some sort of recent existential crisis about dealing with that fact and mm-hmm. obviously she came to the decision to form another resistance cell on terok nor ds9 and we yeah. all know what happened with that but Essentially, I think that this episode is in effect. I don't. I don't think this episode is dealing with that specifically, obviously, but I think it's informed by that at least yeah. subconsciously, because she she has a very real recent example of having to, you know, essentially get by um, in her own way and and to deal with the Cardassians and the Dominion on their own terms, because she realizes that. You know, without even really, I think, making a decision about it, right? And I think that's what that episode in particular was about, was yeah. how it's very seductive to just fall into ignoring the things that you don't like and, you know, having to collaborate in different ways. Yeah, and, what point what, – originally, I think Kira, you know, Kira was taking that position to kind of stall and maybe be as inefficient as possible and then just kind of – it became her life. Yeah, you know, she's got a Cardassian bringing her back to Gino in the morning and she's hanging yeah. out. You know, it's it's a problem. But that's what's happening essentially with Maru to a different thing. She's actually getting fed. She's getting nice clothes and a Cardassian is treating her very nicely, treating her like a lady and she's responding to that in some ways. Yeah. At the well, s- and I think, I mean, the other thing about Kira too is that, you know, she's a little hypocritical. I mean, yes. Kira is not perfect. And I think it's important to recognize that you know, none of the characters on the show are no. perfect. They all have their blind spots. They all have their issues. And for Kira, it is that, you know, she is able to look into herself eventually to forgive herself, to to move beyond what she thinks. But when she sees someone else doing the exact same thing that she was doing, mm. she's very strident about the fact that they're collaborators and they need to be killed. Yeah. And I don't care what happens to them. I mean, this is her mother. Yeah. And she's going to blow her up with a bomb. I mean, this is some serious stuff. Yeah. I, I think the episode very subtly suggests that People do have very different perspectives and abilities for Kira, who is a soldier, collaborating not and not forming a resistance cell is the wrong thing to do. Yeah. I mean, when she's talking to the resistance contact and he's trying to get her to join and, you know, 
he mentions that Maru is a collaborator and she says, well, I was too, you know, I, I was a comfortable woman for a little bit. And he said, yeah, you were for a day. Yeah. I mean, the implication was that she is at, at her core, a soldier who is so unable to take any, uh, a, she, she isn't even able to go into that a little because she knows it's, it's her thing to fight for Maru's situation. I, I mean, look at her from her perspective. She has no idea who Kira is. As far as she knows, Kira is just another, you know, unfortunate Bajoran refugee who, you know, Maru figures that, all right, well, I'm in this situation. I can either fight back and get instantly killed or, you know, put into the ore processing or worse, and then, then they're not going to be treat my family well. Or I can save my family and at least give them food and, you know, actual lodgings while you know, this one woman who is nice to me, I can even pull her out and get her into a position. Let's face it, as far as being a comfort woman goes, which is horrible in any way, Maru has it fairly well, and Maru would probably get things into a position where Kira would as well. I mean, I don't think Maru would let Gold Ducat stand for Kira being given to an officer that... Yeah. So, again, assuming that... Kira is a civilian, which, as far as Maru knows, is the case. This is this is what she again. She's thinking very pragmatically. This is what she decided will be the best good for the most number of people. The um, uh, the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. Even the way that her husband talks to her at the yeah. end, where he's saying, "You know, it's so brave what you're doing." I mean. Maru is going to war in a different way than a soldier would go to war, but she is still accepting an amount of discomfort and self-sacrifice in order to make things better for other people. Yeah, she is separated from her husband and her children, yeah. you know, as we know for the rest of her life. I, you know, I don't think that we, she ever sees them again. No. And I think, yeah, I think that's all true. As, as it said, you know, seven years later, she dies in a Cardassian hospital. Now the right. impli- I, I assume then she just, you know, had space cancer or something like that. It's not really gone into. But... Or Gal Dukak got bored with her, who knows. Well. But yeah, I think, well, that makes me think two things. I mean, number one, of course, is that, Again, to go back to Kira for a second, Kira has a real inability to put herself in other shoes. She is not very, she's not very empathetic, right? And I don't, Hmm. and that's not to say that that she's a bad person. No, but but she's that is just a blind spot in her personality. It's a lot of sorry, a lot of the her early arcs again with learning that there were such thing as noble Cardassians had to do with her detaching slowly from the the terrorist life where again yeah. you have to think in these there's us and there's the enemy kind of terms just as a survival mechanism and and i think for 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 kira you know again she doesn't have the ability to put herself in other shoes and so she sees a woman who is collaborating quote unquote with with Golducat and the Cardassians without even thinking about the fact and this is her mother she knows that i mean she sees herself as a 10-year-old child in this episode yeah she knows exactly what maru has and what kira doesn't have or well narice let's call her narice yeah yeah, yeah. it's kind of confusing there but it it is one of those things where you know she looks at it and she says well i was a fighter and i think that you should fight back while forgetting entirely that you know that's the point of the the ending of the episode when she overhears the conversation between maru and her and her her husband right so that's number one and then the other thing too that we haven't even touched on is the fact that this is time travel and one of the things that I think the episode very uh, astutely kind of sidesteps is this concept of 
Kira changing the past in any way. Hmm. And of course, you know, Cisco, both as a Starfleet captain and as the emissary, tells her, you know, I'll, I'll let she, I mean, she begs him basically to let her do yeah. this using his his you know authority as the emissary to 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 get her to get access to the orb of time and the prophets do show her this so they obviously think this is a worthy thing for her to do yeah but you know she does go against both the emissary and and, and captain cisco by almost setting off a bomb and killing gold ducat irrevocably changing the last you know 15 years yeah. of of Bajoran history. Well, and I, and the other the the the, 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 the other thing I want to say about that is that Kira doesn't see Kira's very um Kira's a very sort of not one note, but she's kind of a single track mind. Mm. And by killing Maru, she may be stopping herself from joining the resistance. I mean, this is one of the things that mm. always fascinates me about this episode is that there's no real internal examination of why Kira joined the resistance in the first place. And I think it's because her mother was kidnapped by the Cardassians and she never saw her again. Well, and so she set up her adult life as someone who had no romantic attachments, had no children mm -hmm. because she was single-mindedly going after the Cardassians. Well, yeah, that was one of the questions I had at the end of this. So at the beginning of the episode, the Kira family is in a refugee camp after Marie was taken. The rest, her husband, young Kira, and her brothers are taken to better lodgings, or and they're given, you know, yeah, an actual house, let's say, or right. something. And yeah, the question was how they get there from because we know that Kira saw the rebels, you know, near where she was living and thought they were cool and started hanging around. So was it just that she was, I, she. Kira seems like the kind of person who was just always a little rebellious, particularly as she became a teenager, and so just just went from there to hanging out. I mean, I think it's interesting that this implies the possibility that a different version of Kira would have just stayed and been a collaborator herself. I don't know. I think it's a hard question yeah. to answer, and I, I think that... I don't know. It's hard because it's so wrapped up in what happens in this episode, particularly, yeah. and the course that her life is set on in that moment. That I don't know that we can answer that question. Yeah, part of what this episode, you know, part of why she even considers making changes to the timeline, and and talking again about Kira being a little hypocritical. Everybody is. She judges her mother for getting into this situation and saying, well, my old life is over, so I'm going to make the best of this life. Yeah. Kind of a thing. But at no point does Kira appeal to the prophets to get her out of here once she's learned what she's learned. At no point does she try and figure out a way to get back in her timeline. As far as she is, as her actions goes, she's acting as if she is 100% of this time now. I mean, the fact that she's even considering, you know— putting a bomb on a place that's going to be her home in a, you know, at a good 15 years is, I, I, I mean, it almost reminded me of something like the Stanford prison experiment where you're just so into this, that this does become your life. Um, yeah, partly. I mean, I think that, that one of the, I think one of the, the, the implications of that is that the prophets, because as soon as she makes the decision to, to rescue Marie yes. Caldecott, she's, she's back and, mm. and she's back in the, in the present. Yeah. She does say, you know, the prophets will guide me. And although the prophets can certainly be capricious and may have, 
I, I don't know. They, they, they destroyed the entire Jem'Hadar fleet as far as, you know, we, we saw they could have made the decision to use this to protect Bajor in the end. But at the end, they do act to preserve the timeline, you know, whether, you know, one could say that the prophets guided her to have that last minute change of heart to be in that position to witness the, you know, the communication, yeah, I mean, of course, it's all a little convenient, yes. but, but this is a television show. And it's a television show which deals with mysticism, so you can have a contrived thing because, frankly, you know, when you have a god in a, in a scenario, you know, stories can line up in just so. I, I wonder, though, I mean, the, the question I have for you in, in watching this episode for the first time is, do, do you buy Kira's decision to... Because she's not trying to kill her mother, right? She's, she's trying to kill Goldukai. Yes. And... Do you buy her decision to have her mother be collateral damage in this war? I well, let me put it this way: I never, for a second, thought Kira would actually let her mother die. I knew that she would have this last minute, as Worf did, change of heart. However, which, that would happen. Yes, and you know, it, it was in a very earned way. But again, when she's saying, "Oh, I don't care," you know, she's she's a collaborator. You know, she's full of shit. You know that she's just saying this to steal herself and that maybe she when she was younger when she was in the shikar had to say things like that you know there probably were situations in which bajoran collaborators were killed as a result of missions that she was on and this is how she was able to justify that and at the time given the information given the lack of connection she probably Mm -hmm. had to the victims she was able to make that but now she's She's grown up much more, obviously, in the past, what, 20 years since she was in the... I think it's been a, lot, a shorter period than that. Okay, but five to ten, it, it, roughly ten maybe even years. Well, I don't know. I don't know. However long... The, the timeline does, it doesn't exactly track, but it doesn't matter that much. Anyway, since she's she's grown up in the past, uh, over the course of the series, let's, yeah. let's at least... And especially in this episode, when she's able to... She doesn't quite walk a mile in Maru's shoes, but she is next to her while she's walking for most of it, and so does get to see a lot of the... Yeah. And Maru is open enough that Kira is able to click onto a lot of her thought processes. At the end of the episode, she certainly doesn't... wouldn't If she were in Maru's position, she wouldn't make those same choices, and we see her very close to Maru's position and not making those choices, but she can't judge her and at the end of the day she was her mother and she that's a line that she can't cross yeah yeah well i guess i mean we've we've done a lot with with kira Maru specifically and i think it's time to deal with with gold dukat and kira because mm. i don't know i'm always of two minds about this episode i think it's a very strong episode i i like it very much and i think it it is a really really good uh, character episode for kira and yeah. and deepens her character even further um but at the same time it does queer the relationship between Golducott and Kira to a weird degree. Yeah. It does. I mean, because this is the well, thing about, about Deep Space Nine particularly in a lot of television shows is that, of course, this was not planned. They did not go into no. the second season of the show going, well, in season six, we're going to reveal that Golducott had a seven-year relationship with Kira's mother in the past. You know, they're not, they didn't yeah. think that way. But, it, you know, you have to look at it in the context of... Gold Ducat has always been kind of obsessed with Kira. Yeah. And, and I guess it tracks, but, but you know, again, number it's a little creepy too. Number one. Because <laughs> he's trying to Yes. He wants to sleep with Kira. Well let's be clear. Number one, it, the next episode obviously talks about this phenomenon where one can do things without and obviously it's bullshit invented by, for the episode, but 
at the same time, if such a thing can be done by any character on the series, it's Golden Cut. And so he can very much compartmentalize, I had a relationship with this woman. Now I want to have a relationship with this woman. At, you know, both of them, both Maru and Kira, are in terms, again, Golden Cut goes after Bajoran women not because of any particular attraction to them, but because they are able to uh, give him give him his need to be the good guy. You know, not only can not only have I done the right for Bajor, but I have a beautiful Bajoran woman by my side. Like, would she be there if I were such a bad guy? I mean, that's his. So I don't think. Number one, I think it's possible that the fact that Kira is Maria's daughter only vaguely registers for him. Number two, it is as well possible that that is the reason he's so interested in Kira because she is the daughter of a woman that he, if if he didn't quite love her, she was around for seven for seven years. Yeah. so he got used to her. Let's say. Um, yeah, I I I, I, think, I I I think that's an accurate read. Uh, and I mean, part of his. He's very. I mean, he very much starts this plot off to mind fuck Kira. You know, he's he has been waiting ever since the moment he met her. You you know you know that he's been waiting for Maru's sixtieth birthday to do this. Um, and so I don't know. Like I, I I think you know queers the relationship fucks it up. Yes, it's supposed to be really scary and yeah. terrifying and creepy. Well. It's from Gold Ducat. He's probably he's one of the worst characters we have on the show in terms of morality. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think Lita's a little worse. Lita, she did murder all those babies. Don't That's you remember that? True. That was, but that was like season two before they really had her character. Before they really out. figured her out. Well, let me ask, and this is going into crazy head cannon weird theories. Let's do it. Could Torazielle possibly be Maru's daughter? possible which number one ex- she's uh because kira's what about 10 15 years older than uh i mean if we look at the yak show i mean i could look up i'm sure Memory yeah Alpha of course has kira's i'm just curious if anybody you know. had made that connection because number one the two of them do have you know a kind of antonice or even sisterly type of relationship with each other and I don't really remember. We got many details over. I thought Ducat just said there was, you know, a Bajoran woman that I loved, you know. And yeah, I don't think that he says her name. I mean, it's possible. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. I mean, cool. I, I'm not going to say that they do anything with that. I'm no, not no, say that I, they I know, but, but yeah, no, and and it's just more. Is this a fan theory that anybody's heard? Have you heard? I've never heard of it. No. Well, then I propose it here. I love making fan theories. Okay, so so Picard was Wesley's father. Yes, and Torzi and Torziel is Torziel's mother. They're half sisters. Okay, yes, I'll go with that. Well, okay, so let's let's talk about Golducott then, because Golducott appears in the present only in a very brief scene at the very beginning of the episode, and um, he's he's unhinged. He's, oh yeah, he's, he's very unwell mentally at this point, and um. Yeah, he. What are you making of this? Because, I and I'm asking this for a very particular okay. reason because obviously we're going to see Gold Ducat yes. again, and he is he has snapped. He's it was on, clear from the end of Waltz, yes, and I don't quite know why he's doing this other than the dates lined up and this is a plan he's been planning for many years. 
if I mean he is on a Federation shuttle by himself, and he's been on the shuttle for months. So yeah, he's probably bored. But <laughs> again, it is part of his obsession with Kira. He Federation shuttles only come with you know Western classical music, <laughs> <laughs> and he's tired of listening to it. Da 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 we have our new theme song. <laughs> I mean, Gold Ducat's, let's face it, Gold Ducat's game, his, 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 his go-to play is to break a woman down and then be all nice and bring her back up. So I'm very surprised that this episode did, yeah, obviously Ducat has no idea what exactly experience Kira went through, yeah. but... You know, I, I fully expected this episode to say, see, I'm not a bad guy. Want to go out, you know? I mean, that, that, that's, that's who Gold Ducat is. He, he. I think he's beyond that now, though. I mean, I don't think that he. Uh, oh, I mean, he knows that Kira will always. I mean, let's, let's not put too fine a point on it. I mean, I think that the show is telling us at the, this point that Gold Ducat is, is, is effectively yes. insane. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's not well. No, but he is, he's at a. I mean, it's almost... And so all of his old motivations, all of his old, you know, whatever, you know, are gone. I mean, he's almost coming off now as a Joker-type figure. He just wants to fuck with people. Well, (laughs) we'll just have to see where that goes. Well, I'm excited. Um, And this is a perfect... Like, with Eddington, we said it was... They did really nothing in between, like, oh, Eddington's gone, we've got to catch him, and I'm back, you know. Right. Golducott, plot-wise, didn't do—we didn't really find out anything about what he's doing in the present. We have no idea where he is, what he's up to, what what he's doing, why, if this is part of a deeper plan or— Right, he, right. But it's nice to see him to know that, like, just as a reminder of, by the way— I'm still around. Yeah. You know, I'm going to come back at points when you really do not want me to come by. Yeah. Should we talk about Inquisition? Let's talk. Oh, before that, though, um, I do very quickly want to talk about the conversation between Odo and Kira where, you know, he immediately realizes something's off. I mean, she's she's acting horrible to everybody on the – and I think it's funny that they immediately click, and because this is a Star Trek show, somebody who has a extreme mood swing uh, should be questioned immediately, just to make sure <laughs> that they're not like you Some know sort of mind sucking yeah, alien force. Yeah, this is just you know that. All right, is this really just you dealing with stress, or is this something? Is this what the episode's about? Um, well, I mean, we could we could do a whole podcast on the fact that this is a science fiction show in name only at this point. Oh yes, but, I mean this. You know. Um, this could just as easily been done in a you know realistic con- uh a realistic context with, you know, Ducat sends her her mother's diary, for yeah, example, yeah. and she reads about that. Um, I like that Kira isn't able to really talk to Odo and doesn't want to, but he, I mean, his, what he says, well, if you can't, don't want to talk about it, maybe do something about it. Like, he immediately clicks and realizes that what her problem exactly is. Even the, Again, even though the two of them have had a lot of shit happen between them, they still know each other incredibly well. He's still who she, even though she doesn't want to talk to him, she's still 
finds an excuse to be around him when she has a problem. Yeah, yeah. There's no reason she had to go there to talk to him. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that's actually a really good scene, and it's a really good observation. Yeah. So good job, Richard. I do hope the two of them do eventually patch up their friendship by the end. Well, we'll just have to find out. But we have Inquisition to deal with, so let's deal with it. Okay, let's deal with the Inquisition. So, um, this is something that I knew was coming for a while. Uh, how did you feel about it? Okay, well, in terms of stuff I knew before going into DS9, because I think I've mentioned a few times, I had a coworker a couple of years ago who, when he found out that we were about to do this, said, oh, I love DS9, and you know, just told me the entire plot. Now, I had no context for, like, any of it, so most of it I forgot it. I knew there were some... Also, if you would like us to track down this person and... Um, oh, he was a nice fellow. And, ...and punish him for doing that, <laughs> uh, please give to our Patreon at patreon.com slash trackaboutshow so we can hire a private investigator. Aww. Um, I knew that there was some kind of black ops organization within Starfleet called Section 31. That's literally all I've known about it, and especially given the show's folk... You know, the line... We don't really know anything about it now. Well, yeah. The, I mean, the line that... Odo has at the end where, you know, well, the Romulans have the Tal Shiar and, uh, you know, there's the Obsidian Order, of course, given the show's... Uh, Which is accurate and not accurate. Well, you know, again, we still don't quite know what Section 31 is. Uh, I, exactly. I, would, I would argue that Starfleet intelligence, as we saw in yeah. Honor Among Thieves from last week is more akin to the Tal Shiar, the Obsidian Order, than Section 31 is. Well, because everyone knows the Obsidian Order exists. Everyone knows the Tal Shiar exists. Yeah. Everyone knows Starfleet Intelligence exists. Apparently, no one knows Section 31 exists. Yeah. So. And, and, and of course, you know, we only have Section 31's word that they're done with the ben- the blessing of Starfleet, but, you know. I mean, what, one, I, of, I, I, one of the things that I think is interesting about this episode in particular is, I mean, number one, it is kind of a companion piece to the drumhead in a I, way. I wrote, yeah. And also, I mean, we'll, and we'll talk about that because, I mean, it's it's a take on that storyline, but it yeah. ends up in a very uh, different place than the drumhead. Again, as DS, one of the general types of DS9 episodes is we're going to de- do a TNG episode, but DS9 style, and this right. is... And we're, we're going to end up by creating this secret black ops yeah. organization that no one knows exists. Mm. Okay. Uh, <laughs> good job, guys. I, I think that that what's interesting about Section 31 and specifically about the end of the episode and how it corresponds to Star Trek, because I don't think it's going to be any surprise to you that Section 31 was very controversial at the time, remains controversial to this day. There are arguments to be made for the fact that the ex- the very existence of Section 31, its origins, uh, are antithetical to the philosophy of Star Trek as opposed by Gene Roddenberry, right? And, you know, we've talked before in the past about how I think a lot of the philosophy of Gene Roddenberry is hyperbole or bullshit, but there is some validity to it. And this is a very... This is something that Deep Space Nine has done very deliberately that does not really track with the Federation as we have grown to know it over TOS, the movies, and TNG. However, I also think it's interesting to note that, as you said, we only have Section 31's word for, for the fact that they are 
chartered by Starfleet in the Starfleet charter of 200 years ago. And there are an autonomous authority, right? And But that is very Star Trek because I believe him. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Is like, Well, especially Star- given that he's recruiting Bashir, like he has no reason to lie about that particular point at that particular moment. Right. And, and, and partly I think it's because I don't want to believe that Section 31 is an evil organization. Mm. I believe that the Federation is a force for good. I believe in the ideals of, of Star Trek as espoused in, in the show and in the movies. But I also think that it's interesting to note that one of the things that we always talk about is everyone's op- the Federation believes that everyone is operating in good faith. They operate in good faith with everybody, and Section 31 is a black ops organization that I believe is acting in good faith as well. That's – well, they, they, they're they doing – in some ways – so we, we've gone through Firefly on our other podcast, Tuning In, and – Which is still available at tuninginshow.com. And now, of course, the Alliance is not the good organization that the Federation is. It's much more muddied, but... Um, the Alliance of Fireflies. Yes. Yeah. Um, the Alliance has these people called operatives who are basically super secret agents who are... And in the movie in particular, the operative says, like, listen, you know, the Alliance is creating a better world. What I'm doing is... You know, I'm doing evil things in order to make that better world safe for people, but I don't have a place in that better world. You know, the operatives, at least this one, see themselves as outside of the Federation, outside of the Alliance in their way, doing the horrible things that are necessary to keep peace. In a way, Section 31 kind of sees itself as well. They they believe in yeah. the ideals of the Federation. They also knew that, know that somebody needs to get their hands dirty and in a way, their secretiveness, the fact that they are autonomous and they aren't really directly reporting, allows the the rest of the Federation to do it still in good conscience. In a way, you know, we're going to dirty our hands because so that everyone else doesn't have to. Which do you? Which is a hard. I don't know. I well, think coming that, right that, at, that's yeah. a hard left turn for for this franchise. I think, and I, you know, and I, I see both sides of the argument. I really do. I mean. I don't think that Section 31 is some sort of, uh, you know, unforgivable change to the philosophy of Gene Roddenberry. No. And I'm going to keep saying it in that voice. <laughs> but, but I also don't think that Section 31 is a great thing. And I think that you could definitely make an argument that, and maybe I'll ask you this, playing devil's advocate here, is, you know, the Federation of Starfleet are organizations that do believe that acting in good faith, people can come together and, and, and find common ground and live together in peace and harmony. That's all wonderful, right? But does the existence of Section 31, does the establishment of the secret black ops organization that, that apparently no one in Starfleet remembers even exists, um, and they are operating autonomously, they don't report to Starfleet at all, mm-hmm. they don't report to the Federation Council, they are just this entire sort of you know nebulous thing that happens and they kind of do what they want to do and they think that they're doing wonderful things, that... You could make the argument, and I don't know that I would make this argument, that the Federation that 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 cheapens what the Federation and what Starfleet have accomplished because mm. we have been led to believe throughout the entirety of the franchise up to this point that the Federation and Starfleet acting together in concert through peaceful exploration, through all of these wonderful ideals that that we know and love in in, in the franchise, have established this utopia. And now we find out that there's this secret black ops organization, Section 31, that is doing 
well, apparently terrible things, although we don't that, really know what they're doing, mm. that even the, the, the very existence of it calls into question how successful the Federation has been. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I'm frankly, this is what I'm what I immediately thought about was the, the war with the Borg. What you know, we, we, we see Picard's view in it, you know, role in that. But what was Section 31 doing to the Borg? I mean, were they did they actually fix the problem and make it look like, you know, Picard did the whole thing himself? Like, is, is that the kind of questions that we're supposed to be? Beginning I mean, to ask? It, it, I don't know. I don't know because you could get into a real situation where a real turtles all the way down situation. Yes. And, and I don't know that that's really instructive or, or, or even where the episode really wants us to go. I mean, yeah, we could probably do an entire podcast where we look at each episode of Star Trek and yes. examine the secret history of Section 31. But, hmm, you know, that would be I, that would be horrible. But that's what we're going to along do. with my Torres Ziel theory. That's what we're going to do after we finish Enterprise. We're just going to wrap back around and we're going to do each episode again. <laughs> only in a section 31. Ooh, mindset. OK, I, we're not going to do that Um, in some ways. And I guess this is a left field way of talking about because. I don't when they're talking about how this was written 200 years ago in the Federation Charter. I the Starfleet Charter. The Starter Fleet Charter, I'm sorry. I, as an American, think about the Constitution and about how there are, you know, to this day, we have a lot of problems dealing with interpretations of the Constitution. Do we need to take this literally or do we, you know, what, what, and what did the yeah, we have fathers whole, want? And, we have whole philosophies of, of legal prudence that, jurisprudence that are, are based on that, those arguments. Yeah. And so the, one of the, Things the characters at the end of this episode touch upon, don't directly get into, but I assume that, you know, since the point of this episode was introducing the concept, and they're all, I will assume they're going to go deeper into it and explore it a bunch. Um, they touch upon, you know, this happened 200 years ago, and maybe at that time that was the right decision. You know, we were as a, you know, as a species, less civilized, less, you know, and maybe we did feel we needed this. You know, but have we evolved beyond the need for a Section 31 at this point? Um, well, and that's, I mean, I think that's true, right? And I also think that um, we don't know what Section 31 of the Starfleet yeah. Charter actually says. At this point, and yeah. I find it hard to believe that people just forgot about it. But okay, I mean, maybe it doesn't say explicitly we are creating a secret black ops organization. You know, maybe yeah. it just says Starfleet like, may make any. Uh, it's any a, any attempt any, or any effort to stop threats to the Federation, you yeah, know, whatever. I mean, you know, we could, we could say anything about yeah, it. There's, I, and I think I think you're right, and I think that the the fa- the, the the problem really is not that Section 31 exists, right? I think because yeah. Odo's point, while I don't think it's it's literally accurate, because again, you know, the Tal Shiar and the Obsidian Order are not really Section 31; they're Starfleet intelligence. But of course, let's uh, let let's let's also say that Od- Odo number one has an outside perspective on yes. everybody, and also he wasn't the one who was going through what Bashir went through. Yes. And you uh, you also know stuff that the characters will learn in you know upcoming episodes. So. As far as a first stab at a metaphor. Yeah, I think it's fine, right? Yeah. And I think that, yeah, maybe there does need to be an organization like this that is doing things that that the Federation Council can deny, Yeah, right? Um, But I I think what you're getting, especially in the last scene of the episode, is I think Cisco is is personally offended, and Mm. Bashir is as well, by the idea that they're not accountable, 
right? Yes. And I think that that's that whole idea with you know the whole setup of the episode where Director Sloan is uh, part of of internal affairs. And I think this may be the first time we learn about a Starfleet Internal Affairs Department. It makes sense. I mean, there just, probably would be one. Just how there was a temporal affairs department, and especially given that this series has gone a little more into the bureaucracy of it, you know, well, of course, real military and police organizations have internal affairs, so Starfleet, of course, would. And Sloan gives that the very high praise that it's a competent department, <laughs> which I think actually is high praise coming from him. Well. But... Uh, they are, I think, offended by the very fact that Section 31 yeah. is not accountable to anyone. And, you know, this was not a two-parter. You know, the next episode is not going to be dealing with the fallout from this no. episode. But it is a very—and I think you see this very clearly, especially in the way in which the, the episode ends, where Cisco says, hey, when he comes back, you're going to yeah. say yes. You're going to join them, and we're going to find out what the fuck is going on here. Yeah, this was a setup episode for that. I I feel like we've barely talked about the episode itself, which I really enjoyed as a mystery story. It was – I did kind of click that maybe they were on a holodeck or something. This reminded me of the one where they were in the Dominion holodeck, do you remember? Yeah, um, yeah. That was the third season premiere, I believe. Sure. Um. Yeah, because this episode, things were a little off, and what really was the moment when he realized, like, oh, Wayun and Sloan are telling me to accept the same thing, and in my mind, I'm like, and also Cisco's saying the same thing, too, like, Cisco yeah. isn't working together, so that must mean that all of this is actually off, like, he's not actually experiencing this, but, yeah. you know, again, as, as a mystery adventure th- conspiracy thriller, it was an excellent one. But I think it is more important for what it sets up because the end of this is basically saying, okay, there's going to be a follow-up to this. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk more about the episode and its structure because I do agree that it's very well done. But maybe the last thing to talk about before we move on to that is, again, this idea of Section 31. And, and, you know, really grappling with the implications of what that is. Because, you know, do you think that this is... You know, like I said, there there are different opinions about this, different schools of thought about this, and I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth, but I I remain unconvinced that Section 31 is some unforgivable sin that Deep no. Space Nine put on the franchise. I don't know how you feel about it. And, and you know, and obviously, of course, you know, I'm not going to be coy and say we're not going to see Section no, 31 I know again. We will see Section 31 again. There's still a season and a half of this show to go. They're not going to set something like this yeah. up and just drop it. That's not the kind of show this is. I guess one of my questions that I have is how long have they been planning this? Because given how recent statistical probabilities was and how directly that feeds into this episode, I would assume that by the time when they were writing the former, they had an idea that this is where they were going to go with it. I don't know. Mm. I would be surprised actually. Hmm. They just didn't work like that. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't plan things out like that really. I mean, I think the only thing you can really say is they planned out the dominion war and that was really it. Yeah. They kind of knew they wanted to get to that point, but all of this other stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I I wouldn't say that. And I mean, I, I guess a big, I mean, it, it works for me given that, I mean, well, I think so. I, well, well, this episode was the plot of this episode is essentially Section Thirty One recruiting. They, I, I, I frankly think that the entire Inquisition, 
to whatever degree the Inquisition is real or whatever happens. Um, it's, I mean, Sloan probably thought that Bashir was a secret agent for the Dominion, but, you I, know. I don't know, because I also get the sense he could, you know, he obviously knows everything he wants to well, know this, about any character and so may think that, I mean. This goes back to the idea of, again, even is the secret black ops organization of Starfleet acting in good faith. Yeah. I think he is. Hmm. I don't know. But I think, I, I think that his his suspicions were, were true and accurate. Well, they were certainly just— Well, his suspicions were, were real, they were, they, they were sus- they were accurate. Yeah, he was justified in being suspicious considering the— But we've always— Well, that's, I think that—well, I think that's actually a really—you just laid down something very, um, very deep and astute is— were his suspicions justified? Like, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily think that they were. Well, we know. I mean, we know Bashir is not this secret eight double agent for the Dominion. We knew- Well, at the same time, we didn't know that he was also replaced by a changeling for part of the fifth season. And that's so. fair. That is fair. Or the fourth um, season. I forget which season that was. Given, though, just how off this idea of, you know, well, you could have a completely, di- you know, that, that they're... And if you, I mean, based on our experience with the television show The United States of Terra, which if you go to tuningandshow.com, you'll learn all about. Um, I mean, they're saying that Bashir is able to be this double agent through some kind of dissociation. Um, yeah. And I don't know, that, that just seems like a bridge too far to me. Like, it's fairly clear that that's, you know, that is kind of bullshit. I mean, they, they're... There is an, it is true that there is enough circle, circumstantial evidence against Bashir to be suspicious, but I think to another degree, they're, they really are stress testing Bashir to see how, you know, number one, they do want to make 100% sure of his loyalty. So, yes, there is a, there is merit in, you know, grilling him till he cracks, you know, to, just to see if he's going to confess to something. But if he doesn't, they want to see how willing someone will not, you know, I mean, but they also, I mean, they also don't seem very worried about the possibility that Bashir is going to do exactly what Bashir does at the end of the episode and tell people about Section Thirty-One. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and and what happens when somebody in today's world, you know, talk tells us about a gigantic, you know, government cover-up conspiracy? You know, if 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 I went to every paper and I said, you know, I just found out about a secret black ops American organization, you know. They're called Section 31, and they kidnapped me last night, and they wanted to recruit me, but, you know, they're held accountable to— Would anybody believe me? Then again, you're not Dr. Julian Bashir. who was gene- to be fair. Who is genetically altered, who has, you know— and Frankly, if they want to, at this point, their backup is if Bashir goes too crazy, they're going to— Trot out all their circumstantial evidence, you know, or maybe yeah. Bashir himself will have an accident that's within their, uh, I assume that's within their capabilities. Like, you know, he knows. Uh, well, they kidnapped Bashir and he was gone for days and no one knew anything yeah. about it. So, yeah. yeah. Sloan says, you know, I'm not very worried if you're going to. He probably knows he's going to immediately tell everybody on the station and he knows when Captain Cisco makes his very discreet inquiries what Captain Cisco is going to be told. He knows that they're not going to have a shred of evidence for anything. And so really the choice of the characters is either we got to deal with this ourselves or we go public and risk, you know, just completely being discredited and, you know, facing their wrath. Well, yeah. And I think that, that Cisco realizes that. Yeah. And I think that's why he tells Bashir to join yeah. them the next time Sloan 
contacts him because, of course, they have no evidence that this exists. And but again, I mean, you know, I'm trying to pin you down on Section 31. Oh, and, and, I'm, I, and I don't. I mean, I think it's a, it's going to give some very interesting plot lines. I think the fact that it is something which I, I, I mean, because we've seen Starfleet characters who do consider themselves judge and jury. Kirk, for example, any, I mean, this is, you know, you talk about 200 years ago. Well, I mean, original series was, what, about 100 years mm-hmm. before this? Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the sexiest captain on, uh, in, in the fleet was the one who felt that it was his right to make these decisions on his own, you know, even if they violated, you know, the rules. Well, he was the one who had the ultimate authority. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think that Kirk didn't think he had the ultimate authority. I no. think that he realized that his decisions were always He was but he was using his morality going to be reviewed that. and challenged and he mm-hmm. could be he could be I mean, he was challenged by Spock, he was that's fair. challenged by Federation, he was challenged by Starfleet command points. I mean, you know, he was challenged. He he was in a hierarchy of responsibility and 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 command. And that is really what the what it comes down to is that section 31 is completely yes. outside of that and they have no they have nothing to do with anything that has anything to do with the Federation or Starfleet. They're kind of just flying blind, doing their own thing, and the Federation and Starfleet have no idea what they're doing. And so, yeah, and again, I see the obvious problematic parts of that. I'm also, I guess, a lot of it is also going to depend on what exactly Section Thirty One does, because what they did to Bashir really sucked. Yes, but at the end of the day, it was an intense recruiting thing that you know was just done to one person and all they did was, you know, take him away from a medical conference and, you know, put him under, you know, holographic interrogation. They physically did nothing to him. He is not going to be psychologically scarred from this incident. And frankly, it ended with a really cushy job offer. So, well, yes, that's a little unethical what they're doing, but it's also not the kind of thing that's beyond the pale. We need to see why that. Well, I think that what I mean, yeah, I. That to that to the degree that this episode in particular, yes. what happens in this episode, what section thirty one doesn't seem that bad, but but, but, we but also you have to go beyond that. Yes. You have to look at what the very existence of something like section thirty one means. It's very dangerous. It is true, yeah. and uh, I guess going back to Odo's point that well, you know, the Romulans have the Tal Shiar again, even if it isn't an exactly a one to one. You know, rate, analogy. Yeah, um, Star Trek has always gone with the thing. Well, you know, people who are different—they're just like us. You know, at the end of the day, we can find some common ground. You know, but we've always the series has always taken to that to mean like minorities are as good as the minor majority. You know, other alien species may have different ways, but you know, we can still come to a common ground with them. This is going the opposite way and saying that. We have some of the negative qualities, too. We have to admit that, you know, the Federation isn't this angelic organization that's going to be right all the time. There is something very dark and dangerous within the Federation, too. If we can accept that about the Romulans and the Cardassians and, you know, the Klingons and, you know, we and if we know that the Vulcans, you know, can get these rages of emotion, you know, and we know that, you know, we know all those things. And then the Federation has Section 31. It's not perfect. Well, yeah, but I think that, I mean, that's an interesting question to know, like, what the Vulcans would think of Section yeah. 31. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that they might. It's only logical that there could be, a, that there should be an organization set up. And if that, that was the original thought of the 
founding fathers of the Federation that, I mean, that may even be there. But again, it's one of those things, I mean, not to harp on the point too much, but I, I think what, what it comes down for me at the end of the day is that the, the existence of Section 31 does not offend me, but the no. idea that they are autonomous and not answerable to anyone offends me. And I, and I think that that's where, I'm not saying that the show is going too far in doing that. No. I think that it, 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 it's an interesting wrinkle, especially, I mean, this is a pretty significant yeah. change, not only for Deep Space Nine, but for Star Trek in general. Yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, Voyager is not the Section 31 show. Deep Space Nine is not going to become the Section 31 show, you know, but it, this is something that exists now and they have to grapple with it. And I think that's what it really comes down to for me is you can have this type of organization yes. that is still accountable to someone in the civilian government. Yeah. And that's, and, and, and I think they, I, and I mean, maybe that would be the most Star Trek way to resolve the Section 31, you know, situation is to, you know, okay, well, it can still be secret, but, you know, at the end of the day, you need to submit reports to this guy. In and the he, series yeah. finale, Cisco becomes the director of Section yeah, 31. Yeah, I mean, like, I, you know, I know that's not the big shootout that we want, but at the end of the day, that is the way of, you know, but I think it is right for the show to deal with things that are against the Roddenberry way and test them. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that section 31 almost comes off as the Federation getting too cocky for itself in some ways and star, you know, this is, well, uh, again, you know, Kirk represented the Federation and Starfleet and Kirk was always right. Um, and it is very easy. And even Picard, you know, even though Picard makes mistakes, he, owns up to them and is a better person for that, you know, and Cisco has evolved as a person over his series. And we see section 31, which has, it, it seems almost as if it's calcified over the past 200 years. Yeah. As I think at one point they say, well, we have, we've, we're very good at hiding. We've had 200 years of experience or something like that. And I mean, like, look what the, look what they're fucking wearing. <laughs> I mean, they're wearing black leather yeah. uniforms. I mean, these are not people that, uh, are, embarrassed about theatrical no <laughs> about theatrics you know what frankly, I mean? frankly i think I, I i mean you talk about why they're not worried about um you know bashir going public maybe they're the kind of organization that kind of even likes being you know occasionally whispered about and you know that's how they get their credit you know they, they like that there are corners that no section 31 and are scared shitless of it. I lost my keys. It must have been section 31. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think maybe the last thing to talk about before I wrap this episode up is kind of the, the, the differences between this episode and the drum head, because mm. it did remind me of the drum head and the drum head really came down to a statement about the dangers of witch hunts and the dangers yeah. of giving one person total control over an investigation and how that can become self-sustaining in a very bad way. And you can lose sight of what you're doing. And when you're not accountable to anyone, mm -hmm. you know, all these kind of things. Right. And deep space nine, I think believes that as well. Yeah. But what, I mean, I think this really shows the differences between the two shows. TNG, the, the whole point of the drumhead was to tell you that. Yeah. With Deep Space Nine, they shrug at the end and they say, make up your own mind. Well, let's also – the drumhead turned out to be a lot of stuff – a lot of excitement over what ultimately turned out to be a misunderstanding. All that really happened was 
a device malfunctioned or something like that or something was sabotaged, but, but it was an isolated incident. But the, the the I think that the fundamentals of both episodes were similar well, in that in that people were using mm-hmm. circumstantial evidence to construct this massive conspiracy or whatever. Yeah, I guess well, the point that I'm making is, though, that in DS9, we are in a galaxy-wide war. We are in what, you know, the holodeck Wayun calls one of the most devastating conflicts this galaxy has ever seen. The dr- the paranoia... Which, and- they, he was programmed by Sloan, so... No, you know. <laughs> but at the same time, we, we you know... Yeah. We, the Dominion War is in no is going to go down in the history books as a very terrible thing. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, no matter what. And so the Admiral's paranoia in the drumhead was drummed up over nothing. Section 31, given the events that are going on in the galaxy, has a little more of a right to be paranoid, frankly. Yeah, but that comes very close of to saying that the ends justified means. Which is... But 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 I like that again. Both of these episodes end in a very unresolved feeling. They're not about, and that's one of the things I like about DS Nine. That even though it does have an ultimately optimistic perspective, it does give the characters dignity. It does give them, you know, the ability to form connections with people different than them. It is still made with love. It gives a lot of situations that it presents, and that basically. I mean, Kira at the end of uh, the last episode realizes that she is in no way capable and it's not e- it's not remotely appropriate to make a moral judgment on the situation because it's that complex. Yeah. And so, situ- you know, Section 31 as, you know, as desperately trying to protect the Federation, do the ends justify the means? Well, yeah, that's a very fucked up and complicated question too, isn't it? It certainly is. I, I, again, I think this episode in particular isn't able to give any answers just yet and isn't interested in giving us answers because it's just introducing this concept. Remember, that concept just gets in the last five, ten minutes of the episode. Yeah. Uh, it's maybe a little difficult to – again, I, I will agree with you. I think the idea of an autonomous organization capable – you know, it, it, unaccountable to anybody, I mean that's – you know, there was a lot of shit like that post 9-11 that, you know, was going on. And it's frankly, you know, this is one of those. It's interesting that this was a couple of years before that even happened because it seems like a response to that kind of, uh, you know, Patriot Act kind of surveillance NSA stuff. But, yeah. Yeah. Well. Well. I think that's all we can do with these two episodes. Okay. But if you have any thoughts, if you would like to share them with us, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash truckaboutshow if you would like to give us a little bit of monetary support, including our other podcast, Tuning In. It supports both podcasts. And if you have not checked out Tuning In yet, it is still a great time to get involved with the show because we are talking about the first season of a little show called United States of Terra, which a lot of people have not seen. And it's very good. And it's on Netflix. So it's easy to watch along with the show. And that can be found at tuninginshow.com. We're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, trekaboutshow.com. And as always, please leave us a positive iTunes review for Trek About. It is the best way for new fans to find the show. And we do not have a new one, but we would like a new one because we like to read them. They make us feel good. Yay. And you want us to feel good, but not inappropriately feel good because that would be wrong. Next week, we are... Getting close to the end of the sixth season, believe it or not. There are only 
I believe, six episodes left, if I'm doing my math right. I'm not doing my math right. <sighs> there are eight episodes left. We're going to be talking about the episodes In the Pale Moonlight and His Way. Whose? You'll find out next week. <laughs>